my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 13th, 2012. I hope you all are ready for a, well, complicated edition of Fighting for the Faith. If we had a discernment scale, you know, like one being the easiest, ten being the hardest, I think today's program is easily an 8.7 to a 9.4, somewhere in there. You're going to need your thinking caps today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really bizarre things being said about God, and it's frustrating to listen to. And the reason why it's frustrating to listen to is because many times when it's, it happens, it happens with an open Bible. And so it's it's like the person teaching doesn't have an excuse. There's the text. Teach the text. Pay careful attention to what the text says, and they don't. Instead, it's like, here's the text, says this, and they head off in the opposite direction. It's as if God says, look up, and they look down. God says, look down, and they look up. God says, look east, and they look west. <laughs> it's it's the weirdest thing. And it's, it's oh, man. <laughs> and and then there's a whole other thing that people do, okay? It's they, they bring their presuppositions to the biblical text, and so what they'll do is rather than starting with the Bible, saying, okay, this is the starting point. Here's what God has revealed. We're going to carefully look at this. What instead what they do is they'll sit there and go, okay, here's a philosophical argument. You know, philosopher Y said this, this, and the other thing. Therefore, we know that this is true. Okay, so they 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 determine a truth outside of scripture, 
And then with that truth in hand, they go into the biblical text. And all of a sudden, the text says something contrary to the philosophical truth that they've you know, sp- spent time discussing. And when the Bible contradicts that philosophical truth, guess what has to give way? Not the philosophical truth. The Bible does. It's the craziest thing. It's just this weird thing. And it, it ultimately, there's a real good explanation for it. And that is, is that each and every one of us still has a sinful nature. Okay, so if, if, we, if we are in Christ, we have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We have been born again, born from above. Our heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. That, that kind of stuff. Okay, that we are a new creation in Christ. That Okay, that's great. And we also, before Christ returns and the, and the resurrection of the dead, we still have to contend with our sinful flesh. Read Romans 7 if you'd like a kind of a thumbnail sketch of how frustrating that can be. Yeah, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Oh, who's going to save me from this body of death? You know, the Apostle Paul, you know, laments there in, um, in Romans uh, 7. So the idea is, is that each and every one of us still has our sinful flesh that we have to contend with daily. And our sinful flesh and our is going to lead us astray in all ten of the commandments, not just the commandments that have to do with how we relate to each other. And so when you when you for instance, when we look at the Ten Commandments, they talk about the two tables of the law. Okay, table number one dealing with our our relationship with God and and those would be the commandments you shall have no other gods before me not to take the sabbath day you know don't blaspheme god you know you, you, those that the first table has to do with our relationship with God so it's vertical table number 2 has to deal with how we relate to each other don't murder don't steal don't cheat don't don't covet things like that that has to do with how we relate to each other and it's really, really, really easy to deceive yourself into thinking, man, I'm making some serious progress in my sanctification because, look, I don't beat up on people anymore. I used to take a baseball bat and club them on the head, and, you know, I've stopped doing that. Now i shake their hand instead. It's like... Well, I'm glad about that. Yeah, <laughs> keep telling me more. You know, yeah, I used to, you know, go, you know, pick locks and get into people's houses, and and then I'd steal all their stuff and sell it on eBay. Yeah, now I don't do that anymore. Great, <laughs> that's that's com- that's some good news right there. I'm glad to see that God is working in your life, and that that is true sanctification. But see, it's really easy for us to look at the second table and be blind to the first table. Okay, the first table, you will have no other gods before me, and you will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Folks, we have got a woeful, woefully lacking understanding of what it means to not take God's name in vain. When it's not, when we talk about not having any other gods and not taking God's name in vain, not blaspheming his name, I mean, that is addressing false doctrine, false teaching, false gods. Um, and uh, and taking God's name in vain is when you are basically saying, "Thus saith the Lord," when the Lord hasn't thus saith. Um, when you when you attribute to God teachings that He has never revealed, and turn that into a law that somebody has got to keep. For instance, okay, 
it just right off the bat, something comes to mind because it's you know kind of fresh in my mind as far as my studies. You know, is Mark Batterson claiming that you know, God is offended um, by small dreams? God has nowhere said anything like that. But we've got we've got scads of teachers running around the landscape right now, making all of these assertions about God and what he wants from us or what is Christian doctrine, and none of it can be supported from the biblical text. And in the worst cases, these these things you, know, you these guys will get up and actually open a Bible. There the text will say something, and then they'll say the exact opposite. What is that indicative of? Well, that's indicative of our sinful and fallen state. And that every human being that is born at war with God. And so our sinful flesh is going to war against God, not just, not just in you know wanting us you know wanting to take other people's things or to um you know, to you know to lust after somebody else's spouse or to covet something that they have or to not tell them the truth those are all true you know signs that we are infected with this mortal fatal disease called sin and you know those are symptoms of it but those aren't the only ones the more damning ones and the root causes go all the way back to the first commandment you will have no other gods so what happens is is that our first inclination oftentimes when we come across a biblical text that says something we don't agree with you, you know the reason why we don't agree with it is because of our sinful state and so what will happen is is that you know christian sanctification is sanctification in life and doctrine and the the doctrine piece of it somehow has become less and less and less and less and less emphasized as a result of it we've got this moralistic form of christianity if you can even call it that that's been gutted and evacuated of all of its uh, doctrines but it's life and doctrine life and teaching the two go together and so the idea is is that we confront people with their sin, sins of the flesh, as well as sins of the heart in the relationship, relationship towards God, in that they refuse to bend the knee to what God has revealed about himself in his word. And so you know that there's something bad going on uh, when somebody who's supposed to be an ordained minister of the word whose job it is to rightly handle God's word. That's one of the qualifications. If a pastor can't rightly handle God's word, that's somebody who is fornal caboodling spiritually. Okay, uh, when we read the Old Testament, you know, idolatry is likened to many times. This isn't just a fleeting reference. It's like one of God's primary ways in which He describes idolatry as He describes it as prostitution. Okay, and he, <laughs> that's how we have got to think about it. Okay, so the idea is is that our pastors. Okay, we don't want them fornal caboodling with another woman. You don't want that to happen. You don't want them committing adultery and being, you know, sexually immoral. Okay, but in the same sense, we don't want them fornal caboodling doctrinally. Okay, because that's what it is. And it, and the reality is, is that doctrinal fornal caboodling, um, whoring after false gods, false doctrine, and things like that. 
that's actually more damning than the other kind. And I'm not trying to whitewash the other kind because that kind damns too. They're, 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 one's a damned sin. The other's a damnable, like double damnable sin. You, you get what I'm saying? So, I mean, the one comes from the other. But uh, so the idea is, is that when we as Christians come to God's word, we are to humbly bend the knee. And when God's word confronts us with something we don't agree with, we must say, Lord God Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords, you reveal what is true. You cannot lie. What you've said is true. And as difficult as it is for me to say this, I repent and change my mind. And my opinion now is what you have revealed. Not what I think is sounds reasonable to my human reasoning or the reasoning that I've learned from the world. Let the world be damned. Let, in fact, that's one of the clarion calls in Scripture, is, is for us not to be wise according to the world standard, but instead, as Christians, to become fools according to the world standard. Because the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And as Christians, our allegiance is to the one true king, Jesus Christ. And you got to understand, in a sinful, fallen world where each and every one of us, you and me included, are born at war with God, the wisdom of the world does not accord with or is in line with the truth. And what I mean is, is that Jesus is the truth. What God has revealed is true and not not what is revealed out, you know, worldly wisdom. I'm sorry, it, worldly wisdom and philosophy, they they are marked by their at-warness, and if you can call it that, at-warness with what God has revealed, what God has said is true. We live in a cursed, fallen creation, and each and every one of us are active, hostile, hostile participants in the war with God. And so, as Christians, we understand that we are declared righteous, our sins have been forgiven, and you know we have been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ, and now given the job as ambassadors of the kingdom of God to proclaim the good news, and those who are pastors, their job is to rightly handle God's word and to not capitulate to philosophy and worldly wisdom, but preach God's word straight up, even if it means that their message isn't popular, even if it means that they'll suffer persecution, even if it means that they will be martyred for the faith. Because in our sinful and fallen world, human beings are not apathetic to God's truth. They murderously hate it. And those who stand up for it, who proclaim it and preach it, oftentimes will find themselves on the receiving end of persecution and shunning because people just don't want to hear that. All right. So at the beginning of the program today, I said we're going to start with today's program is going to be complicated. Let me explain what we're going to do. We're going to start off with something easy. Okay. Now, as odd as this is going to sound, Creflo Dollar, a megachurch pastor, oftentimes because he is so um, closely allied with the Trinity Broadcasting Network and the traditional televangelist crowd, he's not necessarily considered 
part of the 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 broader seeker driven movement now i would point you to evidence that he's actually part of the network for instance his invite to to speak at robert morris's church okay robert morris of gateway church robert morris is clearly in the seeker-driven network. He's good friends with Creflo Dollar. And Creflo Dollar in November of last year said something that, well, is not your standard tele-evangelist line, but is actually something that I've been hearing for years from those in the seeker-driven movement. The The difference is, is that Creflo says it so bluntly, whereas uh, many of the leaders in the seeker-driven movement haven't said it so so matter-of-factly. So we're going to be listening to a a Creflo Dollar um, uh, sermon, a piece of it, where he make, basically makes the claim that uh, you don't come to church and you know looking to be fed. That's not what people come to church for. And we'll hear what he has to say regarding that. But so that we're going to start off easy today. We're going to that's going to be a, that'll ease us into the program, and then we're going to switch gears and we're going to go. We're, we're going to start to uh, to crank up the discernment. Uh, discernment skills needed to do this. Uh, Mark Driscoll has been uh, preaching through the seven letters in the book of Revelation to the seven churches. And uh, recently, uh, the sermon that he did regarding the church at Sardis came out. And gotta tell you, um, this is a perfect prime example of somebody looking at the text, saying what the text says, and no sooner are the words out of his mouth as to what the text says that he goes the exact opposite direction of what the text says. And as a result of it, he makes some really, really, really bad inferences. They're not even, they can't even be supported from the text in order basically to argue for pragmatism and, uh, and the seeker driven way of doing things when the text itself actually argues the exact opposite. And I'll demonstrate that for you today. But again, today's program, before it's all done, the discernment skill, we're going to crank it all the way, almost up to its maximum. Now, after the Driscoll piece, I'm going to spend some time then laying a little bit of groundwork, talking about kind of giving an introduction to the book of Jeremiah. This will be necessary because our sermon review today, we're going to be going to, down to uh, Alfreda, uh, Alf, Alfreda, Georgia, Alfreda, Georgia. I can't even pronounce it right. Anyway, we're going down to Georgia, Andy Stanley's church, North Point Church, and uh, he recently preached a sermon called The Age of Kings, and the subtitle is entitled Resistance is Futile. Funny name. But um, anyway, this is an interesting sermon, and the reason why is this is because for all intents and purposes, it I mean, Andy Stanley spent a lot of time putting on a really thick Bible veneer on this teaching, but it isn't in accord with real history, and it's really not, it's not a correct understanding of the book of Jeremiah. So we've got to first look at what Jeremiah is all about, then listen to his sermon so that I can point something out. And this one's tough because the it's you're going to hear things in there that sound similar to the standard evangelical um, understanding of you know of salvation and things like that. But this is different. It's different, and it and, and here's the deal. It's different by a small degree, a small enough degree that it's hard to detect, but a big enough degree that it makes a difference. And so 
oftentimes when we do sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith, they are they're pretty simple. They're slam dunk because so many people now that are called pastors just don't know what they're doing. Okay, Andy Stanley, um, he's the son of uh, Charles Stanley, and you know he's he's not one who's going to who's going to slough off in uh, in his biblical presentation. Does that make sense? He actually there's he he pays more attention to the details. As a result of it, when he biffs it, it's it's not as easy to catch. Um, so anyway, that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'd recommend a number two pencil, um, something to take notes with, and you're going to need a Bible. Just straight up, you need a Bible for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, and uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and I promised that the first segment would be a little bit easier, so here's our Creflo Dollar update music. That's our Creflo Dollar <clears throat> Televangelist Money Grubbing Update music and uh, from the Pet Shop Boys there. Anyway, this was this is a small segment taken from a sermon that was preached, well, in I think November of last year. And you can find this on YouTube. I'm very excited that uh, this uh, YouTube account has been reinstated. Um, uh, it's from the Not Your Typical Negro uh, YouTube account, and the name of it is Creflo Dollar says Church Not Forgetting the Word. Now, I, 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 this YouTube account disappeared and has reappeared, so I'm very happy that it's back. But anyway, uh, here's Creflo Dollar explaining how church is not forgetting the word. Listen in. All the way back to E.W. Kenyon, Kenneth Hagin, even, even Kenneth Copeland, and even in my lifetime. Every man of God that tried to show you who you really were, all hell tried to break loose against them because it's the only thing the devil has that he can stop you. Mm, E.W. Kenyon, heretic. So I'm going to start all over again with this series on spirit, soul, and body. I'll be able to say some things today that I couldn't say the first time I taught it to you. Uh, this is going to be a review day 
where I take all the message we preach and I'm just preaching all one day. And then next week is going to be more radical. Wednesday night is going to be extremely radical. I, I can't help it that you don't choose to come to churches sometimes. I, you're still going to be responsible. You know, you hear people say, well, why do you go to that church so I can be fed? You don't come here so you can be fed. Yeah, you don't come to church so you can be fed. What? What do I go to church then for? Now, the first time he says it, it's a little bit hard to catch. Don't worry, he repeats it. So if you miss the this answer, don't worry, he's going to repeat it clearly several times. You come here to help me and Taffy fulfill his vision. You come here to help me and Taffy fulfill God's vision. Taffy is his wife. So the reason why people go to church is to help the pastor fulfill God's vision. That, folks, is exactly what I've been hearing from seeker-driven leaders for a long time. But they don't quite say it this succinctly. Listen again. That is, if God called you here, you hadn't been called so you can be fed the word. Now, if you get fed in the midst of it, that's good. But you've been called to find your part in bringing this vision to pass in the earth. That's why you've been called to the church. You haven't been called here, so I came here because I so I can get fed the word. Isn't it so interesting how we come to church out of all of a sudden? You didn't come here so you can get fed the word. Now, if you can get some word while you're here, that's good too. But you came here because each of you have a piece and a part that you play in bringing this vision to pass. So if you're just kind of sitting around. Yeah, by the way, there's not a single text in Scripture that says anything even like this. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find a biblical text that the job of an individual Christian in a church is to help bring the pastor's vision to pass. Nowhere in Scripture does this is this taught. Anywhere. Nowhere. There isn't a single verse that says this. Strange, isn't it? Being fed, but not understanding that you have a part to play in this vision coming to pass. That's why God called you. When God calls a person to a church, you're called to that church to help that pastor fulfill that vision. Boy, this clearly puts him in the seeker-driven camp as far as his understanding of the role of the pastor. Not to feed and care for God's sheep, but to be a fuhrer, a leader. That's kind of shocking, but that's, that's not hardly the shocking things you're going to hear this morning. All right, so there you go. That's Creflo Dollar talking about how we don't go to church to be fed the word of God. No, no, no. You you show up at church because your job is to make the pastor's vision come to pass here on the earth. Interesting, isn't it? All right, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take our first break. Like I said, this is a complicated edition of Fighting for the Faith, and uh, we're going to pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going we're gonna to jump into a Mark Driscoll segment where he twists Revelation 3, 1 through 6, literally says the opposite of what it teaches. I, I'm not kidding. He says the opposite of what the text actually says. You have to hear it to believe it. And like I said, it's a little complicated, but when you, if you've got an open Bible, you'll go, oh boy, there it is. But uh, anyway, so if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your god, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your god's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Solomon Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. C could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you.
Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Warning, in order to correctly handle God's Word, you must pay careful attention to the text. And when it disagrees with you, you are wrong. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for financial partners, folks who say, you know, we want to we want to partner with Chris, and we're going to let him continue to teach by making it possible for him to teach by supporting him financially. That's how that works, by the way. And we're in the middle of our uh, summer slump, but you know we'll talk about that in a second. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. The donate button is if you want to make a one-time contribution. The join our crew button is all about making a one. Uh, actually, joining our crew is about. Signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And right now we are in leg number one of our uh, summer bake sale. We, uh, you know, we make uh, products available to help make up the difference during the summer slump. And uh, my mother-in-law has made bracelets, uh, Pirate Christian Radio bra- bracelets with a sterling silver PCR uh, Cairo flag charm. And if you would like to get your uh, your, your bracelet, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and purchase yours today. And that would uh, definitely help us out as uh, the summer months are long and, well, <laughs> you, know, you get what I'm saying. All right, so moving along, we've, we've got a um, Mark Driscoll segment that I want to do, and that requires me to, well, play this. Uh, yeah, 
uh, living color and our cult of personality. I think that's appropriate uh, when we're doing updates for, well, Mark Driscoll. So here's the setup, by the way. If you have your Bible, please open to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and I will be reading it from my favorite English translation, the ESV. That I lovingly call it the English sanctified version, but that's not a slap against it at all. It's that's just what I call <laughs> I call it. That's just because I'm that way. Anyway, so uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let me read. Uh, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains as an end is it about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess that his, his name before my father and before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? Now, what is this about? Tell me from the text what you know about the church in Sardis. The primary thing, by the way, the primary thing is this. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Okay? Now, let me uh, again go to uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary in order for us to take a look at, well, what's going on in this text. And it's important to note that, well, Kretzman has been dead for a long time. He never met Mark Driscoll, nor has he ever heard of Mark Driscoll. So uh, Paul Kretzman doesn't know James McDonald, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, Peter Drucker, none of those guys. Doesn't know any of them, okay? Um, wasn't around when any, you know, the, you get what I'm saying. So he hasn't got a skin in the seeker-driven game. Let's just put it that way. So he's not somebody who was a blogger. He did not live in his mother's basement. He never ate Cheetos, okay? I'm just saying, you, you, you got to get all this. So you got to understand, this was written long, long before this program or Mark Driscoll preached this sermon, okay? Kretzman commenting on this, here's what he says. So in the first word of the Lord is one of the sharpest reprimands. I know your works, for you you, for you, thou hast the name that thou livest. You know, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Doings of life, of true spiritual power, the Lord expected from his congregation. And instead of that, he found only evidence of death. Before men, the congregation still had the name and the reputation of being spiritually alive and active. Other Christians, impressed probably by the great number of those who professed Christianity in Sardis, considered it a wide-awake church. But the Lord saw and knew the actual state, and he set it down in two words. 
thou art dead. Well, that sounds like three, but um, the art is implied in the verb. Does that make sense? You dead. <laughs> That's what it kind of reads in the Greek. Y'all dead. Anyway, um, Matthew 23, 27. Mark, it is not the size of the church nor the number of the heads that make a congregation, but the actual number of those that sincerely believe in Jesus Christ and give evidence of this faith in their entire life. So if we're going to understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, regarding the church of Sardis, then we must pay very close attention to the words of our Lord written in that letter. And so we know from what Jesus said that the church at Sardis had a reputation. All the other congregations would have said, that Sardis church, wow, they're alive, man. Okay? You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay? So that their reputation is alive, their reality is dead. That's what you need to know uh, in order to get what's going on or what goes wrong in this sermon by Mark Driscoll. Now I'm going to play for you a little bit of the setup that, well, that Mark Driscoll gives here as he tries to preach on this biblical text. The problem is, is that he doesn't pay attention to what the text says. He's going to go the exact opposite direction of what the text says. Here we go. So we'll unpack what Jesus says to this church. And it's important for us to always consider what does Jesus have to say to our church? Would he commend us? Would he criticize us? Would he correct us? What would he say to you individually if he was writing you a letter? What would he say to your family? What would he say to your church? And here Jesus has a specific letter. And like I said, number one, there is no, there's no encouragement. There's nothing in there that is praiseworthy. He says, this is just a bad church. Have you ever seen just a bad church? Just worthless, no good at all. It's a church like that. Okay. No, it's not. He, he, so he's, like I said, he's going the exact opposite. Have you ever seen a worthless, bad church? It's just like that. No. The text says their reputation is that they're alive. That's what Jesus said. So their reputation wouldn't be a bad church. Their reputation would be, man, that church is hopping. That church is alive. But Jesus says, you're dead. Despite what everyone else thinks about you, you're dead. You're not alive. Uh, Additionally, uh, he has lots of rebukes. He doesn't mention heresy, so they're not into false teaching, apparently. He doesn't mention persecution, so they're not suffering. Here's what's happened. They're their own worst enemy. They can't blame suffering. They can't blame persecution. They can't blame poverty. They can't blame anyone. They just don't care. Hmm. Again, their reputation is that they're alive. They just don't care. They're completely indifferent. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. They're simply, spiritually, dead. Just dead. And it's tragic when this happens to a church. Just in the U.S. alone, about 3,500 churches die and close every year. How many of you in your neighborhood have churches like this? You drive by. Nobody's ever going in. Nobody's ever coming out. Nobody's ever getting saved. Nobody's getting baptized. Nothing is happening. That's not their reputation. 
their reputation, according to Jesus, is that they're alive. Okay? So what he did is he went the exact opposite direction of what Jesus had John write. <laughs> Let me, again, go back to the text. Jesus speaking to the church in Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is not this is not a liberal mainline denomination church where no one's going in, no one's going out, no one's getting saved, no one's getting baptized. <laughs> That's not their reputation. See, if that were the case then Jesus would say I know your works. You have the reputation of being dead. And I confirm that. You're deader than a doornail. What everyone thinks about you, that's true. <laughs> that's not what it says. It says you have the reputation for being alive. Okay? So when somebody goes the exact opposite direction of a text and they ignore what a text is saying, they're not engaging in, in biblical teaching. They're engaging in propaganda. They're not proclaiming the message that God has given to have proclaimed. They're proclaiming their message. And that's what Driscoll did in the sermon. So he, the text says one thing, he went the other. He's no longer preaching. He's engaging in propaganda. And listen to the propaganda that he spews later in the sermon. There uh, was another church I was working on, working with. For over 20 years, they've declined every single year. All the young people have left. They've missed budget, I think, 22 years in a row. And so they hired a young pastor who did love Jesus, and he started making changes, and so they attacked him and fired him because new people were coming. And that changed things because now... The way they did life together was different. Service time changed, music changes, somebody painted a wall. We need to fire the pastor. And they did, he's a very godly man. And let me tell you this, every living thing changes. Okay, <clears throat> okay. Um, that's not true. Is God alive? I, I, I just asked the question, is God alive? Yes or no? Well, if you answered yes, that was a smart thing to do. But I'd like you to consider this verse in light of that reality. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, your God, do not change. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Therefore, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not, been, uh, which have not benefited those devoted to them. So Jesus Christ is the, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, do not be led away by new, diverse, and strange teachings. And Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord your God, do not change. Now, I'm, I'm pointing this out, and it sounds like I'm being nitpicky, but 
Well, as soon as um, Mark Driscoll decided to uh, to read the biblical text and go the opposite direction, it was clear that he had no intention of actually teaching what God has revealed or what Christ says in that letter. And he's, well, off on his own. This is an agenda, a seeker-driven agenda sermon. And so now he's, you know, you, 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 you got to understand, anything that's alive changes. God doesn't, and he's alive. So what do you do with that? And you'll notice how the direction that he's arguing. He's arguing from, well, his reasoning, and then letting that govern, and then he's going into the biblical text. It's not the other way around. He's not exegeting a passage. But listen again so that you can hear his argument in context. This is a philosophical argument, not a biblical argument from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which is supposedly what he's preaching on. And they did. He's a very godly man. And let me tell you this. Every living thing changes. This, this isn't going to change much. It's the same as it was basically 2,000 years ago. It's because it's dead. Dead things don't change. Living things change. I've got a five... Except for God, right? ...old son, in five years, he's going to change. I've got a 13-year-old daughter, in seven years, she's going to change. Anything that's alive changes. It either grows or dies. So the question is not for churches, will there be change? The question is, will the change be for life or death? Hmm. Boy, he created the impression that he's uh, teaching what, the, what Jesus reveals here, and he's not. He went the opposite direction of the text because the church had the reputation for being alive, not dead. He's arguing as if the church is dead and they've got to make changes in order to be alive. The, the, the point is, is that they look like they're alive, but they were really dead. So that tells you something about what's going on there. They're not believing in Jesus. In fact, I would say if you want a, an equivalent, you know, uh, you know, what would a church from Sardis look like today? Probably a seeker-driven church. Reputation for being alive, but they're dead because they're not hearing the biblical gospel and God's word rightly taught. That would be an example of a church from Sardis having a reputation for being alive but is dead. But Driscoll's going the opposite way, and now we've got a pragmat, you know, basically he's pitching pragmatism here. You've got to be able, willing to change, otherwise you're going to die. You've got to update your methods and, you know, and be seeker-driven. Will it be for forward progress or for sinful rebellion? There's going to be change. And so I would just ask you, I know that you're scattered from many churches, and even for those who call Mars Hill home, is your first inclination to resist change? Is your first inclination to argue for tradition? Is your first inclination to keep things that are familiar to you, comfortable to you, or to rejoice that there's a new opportunity for new people to meet Jesus, and so change is a good thing? Otherwise, we really don't have this, this attitude of parents. And for those of you who are parents, would you agree that having a child forces change? What changes when you have children? Every Again, this is not the biblical argument. This is not what's being argued and what the point of this text is. Yet somehow he found this in this text. Isn't that weird? Thing. Your schedule, your budget, your health, your sleep. But you welcome that change because there's new life. And so you're willing to be inconvenienced. As Christians, we want to welcome new birth babies um, and new birth spiritually, Christian converts. And then we welcome them into church, and what that requires is change. Things have to change. No, they don't. The church, seriously, how do you think the church survived for so long? 
I mean, we're going on two millennia now, two millennia. And the church has been doing what the church has been doing for two millennia, preaching the word, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins and discipling people by having shepherds in small congregations who feed and care for God's sheep and teach them God's word, right? We don't have to change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That would be an argument against change. The mission hasn't changed. Human Humanity is still sinful. The condition of humanity hasn't changed. So isn't that weird? Yeah, see, I point all this out because he jumped the tracks when he read the text and then did it basically taught the opposite of what the text says. Discernment requires you to pay attention. Words matter in context. And so, you know, and I pointed out what uh, Paul Cressman said on this because, again, he, he's been dead for a long time. He, has, he hasn't got a skin in this game. And yet he pointed out the very thing that's right there in the text that Jesus says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive. To the outside observer, wow, that's an alive church, but they're dead. You see, this has nothing to do with your willingness to change, to make room for, and all, none of that. And that's exactly how he twisted that word. All right, moving along, I apologize for the complexity and the length of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, but I would like to um, lay a little bit of groundwork for you regarding uh, the book of Jeremiah. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to the book of Jeremiah. I will be reading from the uh, English Standard Version, uh, and uh, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at not the text to begin with. I'm going to be reading a section of the text, but I want you to kind of get the overall picture of what's going on in the book of Jeremiah before I read some of it. And I'm not going to, obviously, I'm not going to read all of it. You can't do that in addition to fighting. It's not possible. It's just, there ain't enough time. I can't even speed read my way through it. But I, I, I want you to understand what this book is about. And in order to do that, I'm actually going to read to you uh, Luther's. Uh, that'd be Martin Luther, you know, of the uh, Protestant Reformation. I'm going to read to you his thoughts uh, and, you know, basically introduction to the book of Jeremiah, because I think it's important for you to get this so that you get what's going on in the text before we ever get to um, Andy Stanley's sermon today, because Andy Stanley's sermon is slippery. That's all I'm going to say. So Luther, writing about the book of Jeremiah, he says, he's, this is what he says. Luther writes, Few comments are needed for an understanding of the prophet Jeremiah. If one will only pay attention to the events that took place under the kings in whose name he preached, for his preaching had reference to the condition of the land at the time. In the first place, the land was full of vices and idolatry. The people slew, they killed the prophets, and would have and would have their own vices and idolatry go unrebuked. Therefore, the first part down to the twentieth chapter is almost entirely rebuke and complaint of the wickedness of the Jews. In the second place, Jeremiah also foretold the punishment that was at hand, namely the destruction of Jerusalem and of the whole land and the Babylonian captivity. He gives comfort and promises that at a definite time after the punishment is over, they shall be released and shall return to their land and to Jerusalem, etc. And this is the most important thing in Jeremiah. It was for this very thing that Jeremiah was raised up. 
as is indicated in the first chapter of the book, by the vision of the rod and the boiling pots coming from the north. And this was highly necessary, for since this cruel hardship was to come upon the people, and they were to be uprooted and carried away out of their land, many pious souls, such as Daniel and others, would have been driven to despair of God and his promises, for they would have been would not have been able to think otherwise than that it was all over with them and they were utterly cast off by God and that no Messiah would ever come, but that God in great anger had taken back his promises because of the people's sins. Therefore, Jeremiah had to be there and proclaim the punishment and the wrath telling the people that it would not last forever, but for a fixed time, such as 70 years, and that afterwards they would come into grace once again. With this promise, he had also to comfort and sustain himself, or he would have been a little consolation and happiness, for he was a sad and troubled prophet and lived in miserably evil days. Besides, he had a peculiarly difficult ministry For over 40 years down to the captivity, he had to say hard things to obstinately wicked people. Still, it did little good. He had to look on while the people went from bad to worse, always wanting to kill him and putting him to much hardship. On top of that, he had to experience and see with his own eyes how the land was destroyed and the people carried away a captive amid great misery and bloodshed, nor does this include what he had afterward to preach and to suffer in Egypt, for it is believed that he was stoned to death by the Jews in Egypt. In the third place, like the other prophets, Jeremiah too prophesies of Christ and his kingdom, especially in the 23rd and 21st chapters. Um, sorry, 23rd and 31st chapters, there he clearly prophesies of the person of Christ and his kingdom and of the New Testament and of the end of the Old Testament. Now, these three things do not follow one another in sequence. They are not separated from one another in the book in the way that they actually came along. Frequently in the first part, there is something in the latter chapter which really took place before that which is spoken of in the earlier chapter. So it seems as though Jeremiah did not compose these books himself, but that but that the parts were taken uh, piecemeal from his utterances and written into a book. For this reason, one must not worry about the order or be hindered by the lack of it. We learn from Jeremiah, among others, that as usual, the nearer the punishment, the worse the people become, and that the more one preaches to them, the more they despise his preaching. Thus, we understand that when it is God's will to inflict punishment, he makes the people to become hardened so that they may be destroyed without any mercy and not appease God's wrath with any repentance. So the men of Sodom long ago had to not only despise the righteous lot, but even afflict him because he taught them, even though their own affliction was at their door." Likewise, Pharaoh, when about to be drowned in the Red Sea, had to oppress the children of Israel twice as much as before, and Jerusalem had to crucify God's Son when its own final destruction was on the way. So it goes everywhere, even now. Now that the end of the world is approaching, the people rage and rave most horribly against God. 
They blaspheme and damn God's word, though they well know that it is God's word and the truth. Besides, so many fearful signs and wonders are appearing both in the heavens and among all creatures which threaten them terribly. It is indeed a wicked and miserable time, even worse than that of Jeremiah. Okay, so here's the idea, is that the book of Jeremiah was written by Jeremiah the prophet. And to kind of put it chronologically so you understand what is going on, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel had already long ago been wiped off the face of the map because of their sinful rebellion against God and their idolatry. Okay, So God punished them by literally scraping them off the map. They're gone. Okay, Now, here's the sad part. Judah, okay, which was what was what was called the Southern Kingdom, the Southern Kingdom at that time, you know, this would be the tribes of Levi, Benjamin, and Judah, okay, the remaining tribes, they lived in in the territory called Judah. They saw what God did to the ten northern tribes, and rather than repent, they went headlong into adultery and committed the same sins, right, and provoked God's anger to the point where they they persisted in their vices and in their idolatry, whoring after false gods. And God calls them to repentance. He's patient and long-suffering and finally says, that's it. I'm going to execute the punishment clauses of the Mosaic Covenant. And he did. And because, though, God keeps his word, he didn't destroy them completely. He had Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon come and sack uh, Judah, destroy Jerusalem, burn the you know burn the temple down, take away you know uh, a whole bunch of folks in, you know into captivity, and all of this through all of this okay the you know, prophet Jeremiah is preaching and the, and the people get harder and harder and harder and harder and harder it's, it's not just the kings it's the people as well right and finally says God says enough is enough. A remnant of them are taken to Babylon. They stay there for 70 years, and they have the prophecy of Jeremiah that they would return after 70 years in order to sustain them so that they know that this is a temporary punishment. And what happens after 70 years? They return. The temple is rebuilt. The sacrifices continue, and you know, and, and uh, Israel continues on until the time of the Messiah. So... The idea here is is that as we as we look at the book of Jeremiah we're watching a people who despite the impassioned preaching of the prophet of God refuse to hear God's word refuse to repent persist in their vice and in their idolatry and there and Jeremiah is saying Repent, repent, repent. Even now God will forgive you. Repent. And, the, and rather than repent, they go headlong into it and God's judgment has to come about, right? So I'm going to read a little bit from the book of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem 
in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put on his hand, uh, put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? I said, Well, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all of the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah, and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands, but you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I, dis I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, the Lord, to deliver you. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? <clears throat> Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Keter, and examine with care, see if there has been a, such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? 
but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he, uh, is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the water of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley and know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used in the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can, save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. I have been a wilderness to Israel, or a land of th thick darkness. Why then do my people say, We are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women... You have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in, despite, yet in spite of all of these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying you have not sinned.
how much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it, too, you will come away with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. That's just the opening two chapters of this book. In fact, I think the prophet Jeremiah is very relevant today to the state of what's going on in the church. People who are worshiping the gods of their own making, calling it, well, the Lord, calling it Jesus, and it isn't. So I lay all of this foundation so that you can understand, just from a good synopsis and a cursory look at the opening chapters of the book of Jeremiah, I would strongly recommend spend some time in the text yourself. You'll find that God is doing all of this because he loves Israel and he wants them to repent and he even is willing to forgive them. But they will not turn. They will not repent. They persist in sin and idolatry and in vice. And so God brings them into judgment and he holds a remnant for himself and the remnant, well, they understand why they were judged They understand how long the judgment was for, and they understand that they do not want to provoke God to anger again. And so when you look at the history of what goes on, you know, you've got this, you know, Israel persisting in idolatry and vice all the way up to where God judges them. The remnant go to Babylon, and there God protects them. And then when they're brought back, you read Nehemiah and Ezra, and you find that you know, right off the bat, their first inclination is to disobey God. And they stop and say, no, no, we're not going to provoke the Lord to anger a second time. No way. And they repent and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Okay? This is all about the collective idolatry of the people of Israel and God's judgment on them and protecting a remnant because from that remnant comes Jesus Christ, the one who would die for the sins of the world, the one who was promised for us in Genesis chapter 3 the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent God always keeps his word his word does not return to him void and God doesn't lie okay so that's the picture of judgment and by the way the the that picture of of you know apostasy and then judgment is exactly the same picture that is painted for us in the New Testament regarding the coming judgment of the world, right? Remember what Luther said in what, in what I read, that the, the, the pattern is before God is going to judge, okay? There's you know people going to apostasy, and even the preaching of his word doesn't produce results so that when God unleashes his wrath, nothing's going to stop him. Something to keep in mind, okay? Now, with all of that, okay, you know, it's just saying, okay, well, that's some pretty standard stuff, Chris. I, I may have already known that, right? Okay, good. With all of that fresh in your mind, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to listen to an Andy Stanley sermon. And like I said, there's a lot of things that are good in the sermon, and yet it's off by a few degrees. And those few degrees they make all the difference in the world. Those few degrees make it so that 
what's taught isn't exactly true, but at the same time it has the appearance of being sound, and it's not. But you have to know all of this before we get to that, so that when we get to that, you can spot where the problem is. All right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted, feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. 
Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. You know, it's been a while since I've done an Andy Stanley sermon. All right. So uh, the sermon we're going to be reviewing today is from North Point Community Church in Alfreda, Georgia. Andy Stanley presiding. Keep in mind, he is like a lieutenant colonel or one or two-star general in the seeker-driven movement. The name of the sermon is The Age of Kings, Resistance is Feudal. Slippery sermon. No, I don't know. It's been a while since I've reviewed a sermon this difficult to discern. Now, it's harder to discern it at the beginning. At the end, once you see how it develops, it's a lot clearer to see, oh boy, that went wrong. But I'm going to attempt to try to Point it out along the way so you can see, you know, where he jumps the hermeneutical um, tracks, if you would. In fact, you know, hang on a second. I'm going to kill the music. So without, we're just going to dive into it. Without any further ado, here is Andy Stanley and his sermon, Age of Kings, Resistance is Feudal. Here we go. One of the most fascinating um, stretches of ancient history is actually the history of the Jewish kings. It's, uh, it's a stretch of history that you don't study much about in school, and it's unfortunate. We know more about this stretch of history than any other stretch of, of ancient history as, as it relates to um, kings. The reason is, um, for those of you who are Bible readers, you may remember this, and for those of you who don't read the Bible, this is actually a great place to start. In the Old Testament, we have six books of the Bible, First and Second Samuel, First and Second 
Kings, then First and Second Chronicles. And then in addition to that, we have all these, these um, prophets. And if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, this was the part where you got to, and it just seemed like a bunch of angry old men yelling and screaming the same thing over and over. And you kept going, we gotta get to Jesus because this is getting old, okay? And so the reason it's, the reason it's such a fascinating stretch of history is because First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings are the story of the Jewish kings, ancient kings. Then First and Second Chronicles was written by another author. And it looks at the, basically the same period of history through a different lens. And then in addition, all those crazy prophets that seem to say the same thing over and over, they actually lived during the times of the kings and they had yet a third perspective. So the reason it's, it's such a rich period of history is we have three different lenses by through which we see the very same stretch of history. It's absolutely fascinating. Again, even if you're not a Bible reader, I promise you find a Bible and start with 1 Samuel and begin with the, the story of the Jewish kings. It's absolutely fascinating. It's stuff that movies should be made of. Now, the other interesting thing about Jewish kings is that for the first 500 years, for the first 500 years that Israel was in existence, they didn't even have a king. They didn't even want a king. In fact, for the first 500 years, get this, they, this was 3,500 years ago, they were a nation ruled by law. It would be 3,500 years before the American Revolution or the French Revolution even reintroduced the whole idea of not having a sovereign, not having a king, and just being a nation ruled by law. But when God gave Moses the law, he said, this is going to be a nation ruled by law. There's not going to be a king. Absolutely incredible. That long ago. That okay. Now, this is where I would start to quibble. Mm, uh, um. Democracies, liberal democracies like the United States make the claim that we are a nation ruled by law, right? That's not what somebody living in the time of the judges would say. Who was their king? Answer, God was their king. So now I, I know it seems like a um, minor point. But it's not. It's actually an important point. I don't think the people in the time of Judges would say, oh, yeah, we're a nation of law, ruled by law. No, we're a nation ruled by the Lord, Yahweh. Much different. I'll back this up in a minute, but I want, I want him to keep you know, teaching here. So these little things will make a difference by the end of the sermon. That was the system of government. And so for 500 years, there were judges and there were prophets and there was the law and everybody um, surrendered and submitted to the law because they viewed the law as coming from God. Then 500 years later, after the nation got started, the people looked around the surrounding nations and they said, hey, wait a minute, everybody else has a king, we want a king. So they went to the prophet Samuel and said, Samuel, we want you to anoint a king. All the other nations have a king. It's a little bit embarrassing. You know, we meet people out in the street and in the community. It's like, who's your king? Well, God. Yeah, right. So they said, we want, a, we want a king. And Samuel said, well, you, you have a king. God is your king. And they're going, yeah, but we want a king like we can see and a flag and a crown and a castle and a dragon and lion, you know, not a dragon. But anyway, we, you know, we want to have, we want a king and the stuff that goes with a king. And so Samuel said, really, you don't want a king because if you have a king, they're going to act like a king. And kings raise taxes and re kings start wars and kings raise armies. And, you know, kings are going to steal your children and, you know, they'll have, I mean, it's just, you, you really don't. Okay, I want to point something out here. Even though there's a lot of biblical data here, he's not actually teaching from a text. 
And I always get suspicious when somebody wants to tell the story themselves rather than let God's word tell the story. Now, sometimes it's okay to do that. You know, you're, you know, you need to summarize a particular pieces of scripture and pull it in, but you got to be careful that you're telling the story the way it is. Now, I'm going to read just a little bit to you from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the in uh, his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I'm telling you, that's that's going to make the the difference, a huge difference as this uh, sermon develops, because... Andy isn't exactly being faithful to the details here. He's telling a story, and it contains a lot of accurate biblical data, but it's just often these little ways that really make a big difference by the end. I don't know what you're asking for, and the people are like, no, no, no. We want you to go to God because they view Samuel as the one who could talk to God. Go to God and tell God, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel said, that's the point. You're not like all the other nations. You're different from all the other nations. All the other nations are to look to you and view your king as God, you know, Yahweh, God. And they said, we want a king. So because of the hardness of their heart, God said to Samuel, all right, find him a king. They're going to, they're going to, you know, regret this, but find him a king. So the very first king, he went and found, Samuel found the guy who looked like a king. This is like Disney World, think of king. That's who we went and found. You know, the best looking, he was taller than everybody else. And for those of you who go to Athens church, tell me who was the, who was the very first king of Israel? Anybody know? I think I heard that. Yep, Saul. Saul was the very first king of Israel. He was a disaster. He looked great, but he was a terrible king. Then following Saul was the maybe the most famous king of Israel, King David. And even though David, you know, had some cool stuff and some cool stories, David, again, you know, kings, they, they think they have a right to everything. So David's got a bunch of wives, a bunch of concubines. And then he sees this chick that's cuter than any of them and says, I want her too, because that's what kings do. And so, you know, that whole story. And then as a result of that, his family got all messed up. And because of this guy, Israel experienced, experienced their very first civil war. They had a civil war because of decisions that David made, but that's what kings do. Then following David with his son, Solomon, Solomon did what kings do. Solomon married um, Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon married all these other kings' daughters so that he could have treaties with all these other nations because that's what kings do. Then following Solomon, his son Rehoboam became king. Rehoboam announced to the people, hey, if you think my dad built some cool stuff, I'm gonna build some really, really, really cool stuff and you're gonna pay for it and you're gonna do all the labor. And the people of Israel said, you know what? We should have listened to Samuel. This isn't going very well. 
And the nation actually split into two different nations. Now, when you read the Old Testament, this is a little confusing because at Re as Rehoboam became king, the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom became two different kingdoms. And the Northern kingdom renamed, re retained the name Israel. The Southern kingdom became known as Judah. Jerusalem, the city we know the most about in Israel was part of this Southern kingdom. So then for the next 300 and something years, both Israel and Judah went through a series of kings. And all of these kings kept acting like kings. And they had a very, very difficult time understanding that even though they were the king, they were still to submit to God. They were still to submit to the law of God. So as you read these stories, and that's what makes it so fascinating, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you, there's king after king after king, and most of them were terrible. And most of them did whatever they wanted to do because kings think this way. Kings think, I'm the king, so I can do whatever I wanna do. And I don't have to submit to any laws. In fact, I make the law, I'm the king. And if I make the law, I get to break the law. Now, I, I know a little bit about this because as a father, you know, I kind of set the laws, you know, in our So I've got a question for you. I mean, is this a sermon against the concept of monarchy? Is that what this is all about? I asked the question because he glosses over this, uh, the, the king history in the Old Testament. When you read the, the history though, there were people who's, who were after God's own heart. They followed in the way of David and others who did evil. It's kind of an up and down kind of thing. Some had faith and trust in the one true God, and others were evil and idolatrous. You know, it's but the way he paints it, well, I mean, even David here, I mean, he's bad too. And yet David is a man after God's own heart. Okay? He's setting up a metaphor here, but that's what this is. He's now, this is, the, he's going to allegorize these kings now. And, and you know, well, let's continue so you can hear how he does it. Our household. And, um, and I figure since I make them, I'm the one who gets to break them. So one of our rules growing up was you can't drink the milk right out of the milk carton, right? That's one of the laws that the king made in our household. Who do you think drank more milk out of the milk carton than anybody else in our family? The king, because if you make them, you can break them, right? Well, for all the other nations in the world, that was fine. But God kept saying through all these prophets to all these different kings that came through this part of the world, look, you're not like the other kings. You report to me and you have to submit to my law. You are not a law unto, your, unto yourself. But the problem is this, kings want to be autonomous and kings want to be unaccountable. That is, I want to do what I want to do and I don't want to have to report to anybody. I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want to have to answer to anybody. I want to make the rules. I want to break the rules, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do because after all, I am the king. That was the problem with being a king. And then the other thing that went with being a Jewish king was that they couldn't seem to wrap their minds around this idea that the prophets kept saying to the kings over and over and over and over and over, and that's this, that if you rebel against God, there's gonna be pain. That rebellion always results in pain. And so again, as you read this. Um, boy, so close and not just not quite there. Rebellion doesn't just result in pain. Rebellion results in God's judgment. So you see what he's doing here. He's already begun the process of allegorizing this. Okay, so we got this these universal principles, you know, the... The king, you know, makes the rules, he's the law, and he wants to be autonomous, and da-da-da-da-da. 
And, you know, the, but the kings in Israel, they got to remember that rebelling against God equals pain. It's not quite there. Stories of the kings, you find these kings that don't do what's right in the sight of God. They break God's law and then God, you know, sends invaders in and they pay a high price. Some of them get diseases. Some of them, their family falls apart. Some of them end up having to pay taxes to other rulers in the area because they lose their power and their sovereignty. It just goes on and on and on. And over and over and over, God sends these prophets in to say, look, if you're gonna be the king, you have to be a king that's under authority. You can't be completely autonomous and you can't be unaccountable. Now, it's at this point in the story of the kings that this goes from simply being an interesting story to a very practical and applicable story. Because the truth is this and the previous slide where we talked about autonomy and being unaccountable, the truth is we can relate to this because there's something in me and I'm just talking about me. So now he's turned it into a principle, autonomous and unaccountable, rebellion going to pain. So he's allegorized the his retelling of the story of the kings of Israel, the bottom line, and now it, we got an applicable, relevant thing that we can apply to our lives. Autonomy and unaccountability is bad, and that lead, that's rebellion, and will it, it'll cause pain. Hmm. And there's something in those of you who are men, because I think I can talk to the men in the room, and there's probably something in most women of you women, but I'm I'm having to guess a little bit. There's something in me, honestly, that wants to be the king. I wanna be autonomous. It's a little bit part of the American dream. We, we, we wanna have enough money and enough authority and enough power to where we can do anything we want. We don't have to be polite if we don't wanna be polite. We can go where we wanna go, stay there as long as we wanna stay, spend time with whoever we wanna spend time with, not spend time with people we don't wanna spend time with. I, with something in me that wants to be autonomous and unaccountable. It's just in you, it's just in me. In fact, maybe you grew up thinking one day, I'm gonna have so much money. I'm gonna have so much money, I'm gonna have so much power, nobody's gonna ever be able to tell me what to do. Did you- no. <laughs> Listen carefully, because uh, you, you can see what's being deconstructed here, okay? The thing that's being deconstructed is, well, Western liberal democracy individualism which there's much sin in that that must be rebuked and called to repentance and forgiveness. But weird what he's doing here. Just It's just weird. This is a community type of punch that's going on here. And it's not based upon any particular text. It's based upon his recasting of the stories of the kings of Israel. And, yeah, you're kind of missing the whole point. The whole point was is that they rebelled against God and worshipped false gods. Baal, Asherah, Molech, they were whoring after other gods. We just read it in Jeremiah. You know that that's just natural. Now, some of you ladies, maybe you feel the same way. In fact, you married who you married because you thought he would be a means to that end. Now, you didn't tell him that. And you still haven't told him that. And you're a little disappointed that, you know, it hasn't worked out. But you... <laughs> You know, your mom and your dad said, hey, you need to hitch a ride on that wagon because that wagon's going somewhere and he ain't very cute, okay? But hey, you know, one day he's gonna provide the, I didn't say that either. He pro, he's gonna provide the lifestyle. Of course, you looked at your mom and then looked at your dad and, went, and who's talking. But anyway, so um, <laughs> he's gonna provide a lifestyle to where you're gonna have the freedom to do whatever you wanna do and live where you wanna live. That's just a natural thing. There's something in me and there's something in you to some extent, maybe you're a better person than I am, where we wanna be king. 
We wanna be autonomous. I don't wanna be accountable. I don't wanna have to say yes and ma'am and no ma'am and yes sir and no sir. I wanna do what I wanna do. And at the same time, we wrestle with this as well. We wrestle with the idea that the fact that I break rules sometimes leads to pain. And if there is in this spiritual context resistance to God's will for my life, there's gonna be pain. In fact, the truth is, if you violate the principles of God, either on purpose or by accident, there's pain. If you violate the law of God, either by accident, you didn't even know there was a law of God, or on purpose, you knew the law of God and you just decided I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do, there's pain. There's a relationship between... Yeah, see, pain doesn't even come close. And notice it's temporal. Where's the eternal consequences of rebellion against God. I mean, to say that hell is painful is quite the understatement, but that doesn't even seem to be in play in the way he's discussing it. Between rebellion and pain, but kings don't want to see that. They don't want to accept that because... Oh, and here's the other part of it. Yeah, our problem is, is, is not... The, the problem of humanity is not that there's a whole bunch of people who want to be king running around. No. The problem of humanity is we got seven billion little deities. They want to be their own god. And the difference between wanting to be your own god and being a king, there's a big difference. It's qualitatively different. People who think like a king think, I can do whatever I want to do and... I can manage through the consequences. Whatever the consequences are of my action, I'm the king. I can manage through the consequences. And God would say to the kings over and over and over through the prophets, no, you can't. Even though you're king, you can't manage through all the consequences. And the consequences... Where does God say, no, you can't manage through the consequences? You see, there's all these details there that are biblical... It's, but it's as if they've been robbed of their real punch. It's like it's it, it's like you know the prophets are two hundred proof. Jeremiah is two hundred proof. It'll like melt your face off that kind of strong. But it's like he's taken Jeremiah and diluted it with something else in order to take the two hundred proofness out of it. It's weird that you begin to manage will begin, will eventually become consequences that you fear and that will control your future. Now, this was a really big deal to me when, when my kids were young. I wanted my kids to understand the relationship between rebellion and pain because I realized I had an option. I realized that I could teach them the relationship between rebellion and pain, or I could wait and let a teacher or a principal teach them the relationship between rebellion and pain, or I could wait and let an employer teach them the relationship between rebellion and pain, or I could let somebody who drives a car with a blue light on top teach them the relationship between rebellion and pain. Because at some point in all of our lives, we are confronted with this reality. And since we'd had some kids in our family from, you know, friends, kids, who it didn't look like their parents had taught them that, um, we decided we wanted to teach our kids that. Because when we were around kids who did not understand this relationship, we didn't want to invite them over anymore. Now, maybe I'm saying too much. Have you ever wanted to give somebody else's kids a spanking? It's like, you know, your parents aren't going to spank you. Somebody's going to spank you eventually. We might as well get started right now. 
because you don't understand the, co the connection. And you know what? It's going to be a teacher, a principal, an officer. You, I mean, people in prison are in prison because they've learned the hardest way imaginable. There's a relationship between breaking certain laws and pain of life. So anyway, this is something kings just don't seem to understand. And it's something we all resist. In fact, before we jump into the story for today, it could be that you're watching or listening or you're here in one of our churches. And the truth is you're caught in this right now because you have tried to be a person who lives above the law, a law unto yourselves. You're, you're rich enough, you're powerful enough, you have enough leverage, you know, you're the man in the family, whatever your deal is, but you've got just enough leverage somewhere in some relationship to where you're doing whatever you wanna do and you're beginning to experience the consequence of the pain of that and you're wrestling with that. In fact, those of you who are Christians or God followers, you might even say it this way. You might even say, you know what? The truth is I feel like I'm in an arm wrestling match with God. And I know there's something that God wants me to do and I don't wanna do it because I don't wanna be accountable to an invisible God. But my conscience is speaking to me. Um, you know, every once in a while, my wife or my husband, you know, points this out and I just react. Every once in a while, my, my parents say, have you thought about it? Did you know about it? And I just react. And there's an internal battle inside of me and it boils down to this, I wanna be king. And I wanna think I can manage the consequences of the fact that I don't wanna do what anybody tells me to do. And today as you listen and today as you watch and today as you experience our time together, I think I can manage the consequences. I don't even know what that sentence means. You may find yourself in the middle of learning or having to learn or at the beginning of learning this valuable, valuable lesson that no one wants to learn the hard way, but everybody learns some way. Now, to, to illustrate this, I wanna take you to the life of a specific king. In fact, he was the final king in the Southern kingdom of Judah. He didn't know he was gonna be the final king. And that's because sometimes God doesn't count to three. You know what I mean? You ever do that as a parent? Sit down. One, two, okay. See, God doesn't do that, I don't think. And so if God had said to Zedekiah, that's who we're gonna talk about, King Zedekiah. If God had said to King Zedekiah, okay, Zedekiah, here's what I want you to do. One, two, maybe Zedekiah would have done it, but Zedekiah didn't know he was gonna be the last king that God had finally said, that's it. I am done with the kings of Judah. So let me tell you how Zedekiah became king. Yeah, but Jeremiah did tell them that. In about 597 BC, right before 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who basically controlled everything everywhere, he was basically an emperor, they didn't have that term back then. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had already made Judah a vassal state, which meant they were supposed to send him taxes. Well, King Jehoiakim, the king right before Zedekiah, King Jehoiakim and his father decided, we're not doing that anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar, this is a famous piece of history, Nebuchadnezzar sent his army into Judah invaded the city of Jerusalem, knocked down part of the walls, went into the temple, raided the temple, took everything of value. And then he did something he did everywhere he went. He gathered up everybody who made $200,000 and more, told them to pack their stuff in their cars and SUVs. And he sent them all to Babylon. He took the upper class and just kidnapped them and sent them all to Babylon. Then he took about half the middle class and did the same thing with them. Then he took the entire army of Judah, the entire army, and he sent them to Babylon to incorporate them into his um, city. And then he took the king, Jehoiakim, put him in chains, and he sent him to Babylon as well, because Nebuchadnezzar had a cool thing he did. Um, a lot of you are collectors. You collect coins or stamps or bugs or <clears throat> tickets. I don't know, you know, whatever you collect, okay? You collect stuff. 
get this, Nebuchadnezzar had a king collection. Seriously, this is true. He had a king collection. He would take the kings of all the nations he'd conquered and he would put them in chains and send them to Babylon and he would keep them in his building. And he would have a big party and everybody's having fun. And all the food's gone and everybody's drunk and everybody's kind of getting bored. And he would say, hey, 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 y'all wanna see my kings? Seriously. And he would march out all these kings that he had collected from all over the world. It was so cool. And they'd come out in their bronze and gold chains. He'd say, this is so-and-so. This is when I took this city. This is so-and-so. When I took this city, y'all wave. And he would collect kings. That's how powerful he was. So he takes Jehoiakim, the king of, the, of Judah, and he sends him to Babylon to be part of the king collection. And then he takes our guy, Zedekiah, and he puts him on the throne in Judah. And he says, okay, you're the king, but you're only the king because I'm making you king. Three rules. Number one, you do not raise an army. Number two, you send me taxes. Number three, don't you repair the walls around this city because I want you vulnerable and I want you poor and I want you submissive. And Zedekiah is on the throne going, I get to be the king, okay? And then Nebuchadnezzar and his army, they go home. Well, about that time, one of these, these crazy old prophet guys, Jeremiah, he's got a book in the Bible too called Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah comes to Zedekiah and he says, look, God has spoken to me and here's the deal, Zedekiah, okay? You are being punished and the nation is being punished because it rebelled against God, the previous king, the king before that, the king before that. In fact, most of the kings did not conduct temple worship. Most of the kings, you know, sacrificed to pagan idols. Most of the kings disobeyed. So God is judging us, Zedekiah. So here's what you need to do. You need to accept the fact that we're being disciplined. God has put our whole nation in the corner, okay? He took away our Facebook. He took away our computer. He took away our cell phone. He took away our car keys. We're being punished. So what you need to He took away our Facebook. There were women, children, and old people slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem. I mean, they were slaughtered. Um, if I'm not, yeah, you know, I may be speaking out of turn here. I haven't looked this up in a while, but wasn't one of the kings of Judah sent to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar gouged his eyes out so he would never see again? This is this is not just God punishing a teenager to instruct them and turn their behavior around. This is so much worse than that. And the people who were killed, who died in idolatry, they went to hell. To do as a king is you need to bring the people back to God. Don't worry about Nebuchadnezzar. Don't worry about raising an army. And don't try to be king. Just repent of your sin and lead the people to repentance. And if you do, God is going to restore the nation when God is ready. <clears throat> but Zedekiah was the king. And so here's what he did. This is what the scripture tells us. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. That's part of the problem right there, okay? <laughs> that frontal lobe thing, you know about the frontal lobe? Your frontal lobe doesn't fully develop till you're 21 or 22, okay? So his frontal lobe had not quite developed apparently. So he's 21 when he becomes the king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. And check this out. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. 
So here he has an opportunity to fresh late. We're gonna start over. We're gonna call the people to repentance. We're gonna get our act together spiritually and then trust God at the right time to raise us up and give us independence again. But instead of doing that, he said, no, I'm the king. I'm gonna do whatever I want to. I'm not accountable to God. I'm not accountable to the law. I could care less what happens in the temple. Jeremiah, thanks for the sermon. See ya, don't wanna be ya, okay? And then, then as the little time went by, Zedekiah did the dumbest thing imaginable. Now, I gotta pause because this kind of relates to us as well. I've been doing this a long time. Get lots of letters and emails. We love to celebrate baptism at all of our churches, don't we? It's just fun. And we hear people's stories and some of those stories are your stories. But here's a theme. When people rebel against God, when people say, ah, I don't believe all that, I'm not doing all that, they make stupid decisions. In fact, I'm not picking on anybody. Every one of us in this room with about 30 seconds of thought could raise your hand and go, let me tell you about a really stupid decision I made that when I came back to faith or when I came to faith, I looked back on that period of my life and thought, that was really stupid. People come back to faith with all kind of debt they shouldn't have, with all kind of busted up relationships, estranged from kids and grandkids and just complexity, complications in life. That I mean, life's already complicated. Complexity that they created because of their own bad decisions. Bad decisions. These are sins that Christ had to die on the cross for. And I don't know if the cross even makes an appearance in the sermon, it, it's it, it's this is weird because I feel like we're taking the sin problem and dividing it by six and using that reduced number as as the well the representation of what sin is. No, no, no. It's it's six times worse than this. And this is what happens when you try to be king. So here's this twenty-one-year-old kid when you try to be king. So now, so apparently the kings there are an allegory. Now he's the king, and guess what he did? Check this out. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, and he had made it that, who had made him take an oath in God's name. Now, I've tried and tried and tried to think about a way to to explain how stupid this was. So. Wherever you're from, I want you to think, I know most of us in this room are, are from around Georgia, but if you're watching from some other part of the country or, or the world, just think about your state or your province and think about the smallest town in your state or province, okay? I'm just, I'm gonna pick on Ella J, okay, if you're from Georgia. It's not the smallest, okay, they're smaller. But Ella J, great place. Imagine if Ella J declared war on the state of Georgia. And they gather, and, and you think, well, if, if you've been up there, Andy, lots of guns. There are a lot of guns in Ella J. <laughs> And there are a lot of guns. Everybody in LJ has a gun, I think, or two. But, 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 have you been to Dobbins Air Force Base? See, you, everybody in LJ may be packed and loaded, and, you know, guns everywhere. Have you seen a C-5, you know, have you seen the stealth bomber? Have you been to Dobbins? So for, for LJ to declare war, you know, it might make sense if you live in LJ, but everybody else in Georgia is like, Really? Do you think that's what this was like? We're told Nebuchadnezzar, we're not sending him any taxes. I'm raising an army and we're fixing the walls. <laughs> and Jeremiah went to see Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, remember me? Hey, this is a really bad idea, okay? In fact, you're gonna look back on this and say, that was the stupidest decision I ever made as king. I'm telling you, this was a terrible idea. Well, word gets to Nebuchadnezzar and he is so irritated. 
And so he doesn't even come back. He sends just a small portion of his army. He says, go down there and take Zedekiah out. I can't believe, you know, I just can't believe the arrogance of this guy. So they show up and they wake Zedekiah up one morning and say, you gotta come up to the wall and see this. And Zedekiah gets up on the wall and looks out and, and there's Nebuchadnezzar's army. It's only been a few years since they came down and took Jehoiakim out. And so he goes to Jeremiah and says, what should we do? And Jeremiah says, let me tell you what to do. You've only got one chance, okay? God is counted to three and he's on the first syllable of three. One, two, three, okay, you are at the end. You need to open those gates. You need to walk out of those gates. You need to fall on your knees and you need to repent and you need to take your family with you. And if you'll go outside and you'll humble yourself, he won't take your life and he won't destroy this city. Zedekiah is like, I'm not doing that because I'm the king. And a few days go by. And then one morning they wake Zedekiah up and says, you gotta see this. And he walks up and it looks like the whole army's leaving. And sure enough, the city lines the walls around Jerusalem as as Nebuchadnezzar's army leaves the siege works. And there's like dancing in the street. And Zedekiah calls Jeremiah and says, I told you, I told you they left. And Jeremiah's like, don't get excited. They're gonna come back. He's like, no, 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 God has delivered us. And Jeremiah's like, no, God has not delivered you, Zedekiah. You are still in rebellion, but God's given you one more chance. And what they found out later is this. When Nebuchadnezzar's army went went to Judah, the Egyptians came in. By-, by the way, Zedekiah's problem, primary problem, is unbelief. That's his problem. He doesn't believe the word of the Lord. Where is the word of the Lord? It's being spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah preaches the word of the Lord to Zedekiah, and Je- Zedekiah doesn't believe. That's the problem. Behind and invaded the other side of of the Babylonian kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar's focus shifted and he had to go fight the Egyptians. And so uh, so, uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, so so Zedekiah Zedekiah calls Jeremiah back in and says, see, and Jeremiah says, look, I'm telling you what's gonna happen. They're gonna come back and they're gonna be angrier than ever before. And I'm just telling you, you need to surrender. Just prepare your army to surrender. And Zedekiah says, I'm not having any of it. So Jeremiah, because he's an obstinate prophet, does what obstinate prophets did, and he got one of those sandwich boards, you know, and he walked around, I just made that up, he walked around the city of Jerusalem with the sandwich board saying, surrender and repent, surrender and repent, and he told the whole army, Nebuchadnezzar's coming back, and when he gets here, you need to open the gates and surrender, and if you do, you will live, but if you stay in this city, you will surely die. Well, word got to Zedekiah that Jeremiah was scaring the army to death, and he said, take care of him. So they take Jeremiah. Again, the problem is they don't believe the word of the Lord. Who told Jeremiah what was going to happen? Answer, God. And they won't believe. They won't repent. They won't trust him. Who are they trusting in? Their false gods. Now he's kind of an older man. And they put ropes under his arms and they drop him down to the bottom of a well. The water's gone, but it's mud up to his knees. And he refuses to stop shouting. So people walk by this cistern and they hear this voice, repent, repent. It's like, hey, there's a talking cistern. Really, you gotta see this, okay? So they pull him out, he won't shut up. They put him in prison. He's like, I'm telling you, I'm here to just tell you, God is judging this city and your only hope is to evacuate the city. And then sure enough, one morning, And where did Jeremiah get this information from? God, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. 
they won't listen to the word of the Lord. They will not believe the word of the Lord. Wake Zedekiah up. King Zedekiah, you got to see this. And he walks back up to the top of the wall and he looks out. And it's a vast, 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 vast army that is surrounding the city. It's not just an army. The scripture tells us that Nebuchadnezzar brought everybody. And as we'll see in just a minute, they didn't show up for a battle. They showed up to stay. It was like several cities surrounded for miles and miles and miles, the entire city of Jerusalem. And the Nebuchadnezzar's army began to build a wall. And eventually they would build a wall of earth and stone and wood all the way around, several miles all the way around the city of Jerusalem. Here's how, he, here's how it's described in 2 Kings. He says this. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, he's been a king for nine years. On the 10th day of the 10th month, see, this is history, this isn't fiction. 10th day of the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and the support people and the kitchens and the slaves and the camels and everything it would take to feed this vast army. He encamped outside the city and he built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, for two years, for two years, they didn't attack the city. They just decided, you know what? We're gonna let you starve to death. And they had everything they needed. And so it was like several cities built outside the walls of Jerusalem. And for two years, Zedekiah and his people sat inside those walls and they began to starve and starve and starve. And so finally, Zedekiah, his, his pride, you know, had been so damaged. He said, somebody find Jeremiah. Where's Jeremiah? Bring me Jeremiah. He said, bring Jeremiah it says, Jeremiah, okay, will you pray? <laughs> so I'm not gonna pray. I've told you, you're being judged by God and you refuse to repent. And I gave you chance after chance after chance and God gave you a chance, every chance in the world. You only have one option. And here's what Jeremiah told him, what he'd been telling him all along. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. That's right, this is God's word. This is what the Lord said. He's speaking the word of the Lord. If you, if you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down and you and your family will live. But check this out. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. In other words, Zedekiah, as you go, this whole city goes. As you go, your family goes. You're the king. You had to do it your way. God's given you one last chance. Throw open the doors of this city, surrender personally, surrender your family, surrender this city, and God will spare it. But if you don't, if you just Now, by the way, is Jerusalem being judged? Is Judah being judged because of the sin of one man? or the sin of idolatry of the whole nation. Well, we read it, the beginning of Jeremiah, the whole people of Israel had turned away to worthless idols. In order for Zedekiah to live, he needs to believe the word of the Lord. He needs to repent, which means to change his mind, stop unbelieving, and believe the word of the Lord. Trust God. Decide to stay. You will not live. 
So Zedekiah thought about it and he thought about it and he went back to Jeremiah and said, yeah, but I have enemies out there. Some Jews have left this city earlier and they've conspired with Nebuchadnezzar against me. And I'm afraid that they've whispered in his ear and that you know, if I surrender, no matter what he says, eventually he will take my life. And Jeremiah assured him, he said this. He said, they will not hand you over. Jeremiah replied, obey, obey, obey. Quit being so stiff-necked. Quit being so arrogant. Quit being so kingly. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. But, but, but if you refuse to surrender, if you refuse to surrender, you won't live to see the next day. Neither will your, will your family. And if you thought Nebuchadnezzar extracted revenge the last two times he was here, you wait and see what's gonna happen to the people that God has entrusted to you to lead. Now, this is a big dramatic story, you know, and it's armor and dust and it's the things movies are made of, you know, and there's fear and there's terror and there's famine because famine breaks out. They're having to eat horses and they run out of food. I mean, it's horrible, horrible. But to some extent, it's like a big giant, you know, Hollywood production of, of things that, maybe go on in your life, maybe going on in your life right now. So here's the, uh, by the way, there is a connection. You have the same sinful nature that Zedekiah has that causes you to doubt God's word, to not trust him, to not do what he has commanded you to do. So yeah, there's a direct crossover here, but is the solution to this sinful problem your sinful rebellion against god is the solution just hey straighten up and fly right just obey i mean aren't you tired of all the bad things that are happening to you as a consequences of your bad decisions make better ones is that the solution or is the solution repentance and the forgiveness of sins that's what jesus said that the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. This is repentance, but where's the forgiveness of sins? By the way, this isn't godly sorrow either that he's preaching for. It's just, hey, are you tired of like, you know, the bad things happening to you because of the, you know, the dumb decisions you've made? Just obey God. It's not a Christian solution, by the way. That you're beginning to face the consequences of trying to be king. You're beginning to face the consequences of, I want to be autonomous and do what I want to do. All of a sudden, the, the enemy is gathered around outside. And you know that to go out is to risk your life and to stay inside the walls is to risk your life. And suddenly, I don't know what to do. And now you're here today listening to this message. Or you're watching online or you're watching on television. Here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, who told him? How did he know? No wonder my wife wanted to get me here today. She must have known what he was talking about. In fact, she probably sent him an outline for this message. <laughs> Why is it my parents, you know, told me to, you know, to make sure you're at church today? I mean, how did they know? Nobody knows. This is the human condition. It is in all of us to want to be king. And at different points along the way, we find ourselves wrestling with God and we're just not sure we want to say yes. And here's why I understand this personally. It's because we feel like we're giving so much up. 
And the reason we feel like we're giving so much up is because we don't understand God and we don't know how much he loves us. Because what we find out when you read the story and you back into the, you know, the broader context, you discover God wasn't punishing the nation. God was trying to win the nation back. God wasn't angry with the nation as, in an, you know, as if the nation was God's enemy. From God's perspective, the nation was God's child. And God was disciplining the nation in order to bring the nation back. But Zedekiah wanted to be king. And so he continued to act like a king. And suddenly he was faced with consequences, not only that he could not manage, he faced consequences that he feared. And because of his fear, he made a terrible, terrible, terrible choice. No, it was because of his unbelief, his refusal to believe and trust the Lord. That's really what this is about. I just want to read real quickly how this story ends. Here's what happens. Second Kings chapter 25. It says, by the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through. Eventually the wall was breached. And the whole army, the, the, not Nebuchadnezzar's army, Zedekiah's army, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Again, this is history. There were people there. They knew the details of this city. Though the, Babylonians, well, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled toward Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him on the plains of Jericho. So Zedekiah actually left his city with his army and left his city to Nebuchadnezzar and ran for his life with his army. But all of his soldiers were separated from him and scattered and he was captured, just like Jeremiah predicted he would be. He was taken to the king of Babylon. No, just like the Lord told him he would be. See, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. These little details matter. At Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze and shackles, and took him to Babylon to become one more king and Nebuchadnezzar's king collection. Wow. Imagine the last thing you see is your sons and perhaps his daughters being murdered. Perhaps the, his sons were murdered so that there would be no lineage. And perhaps, and no doubt, his daughters were taken away. Right. That's a little bit more than having his Facebook taken away. To be slaves. And that's the last thing he saw. And then he spent the rest of his life in a prison in Babylon. Now that's dramatic, isn't it? It's a bit gory, isn't it? Again, it's the thing that movies and stories are made from. But when you look at the biblical interpretation of this, you ask the question, why is this in the Bible? Why did somebody bother to write this down? What was Jeremiah's take on this? It becomes very, very clear that God wasn't trying to pay the nation of Israel back. God was trying to win the nation of Israel back. Now, this is true on a lot of levels. So don't reject this. This is, this is absolutely clear in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And the reason he went to such lengths to get their attention is simply this, because they belonged to him. And the reason that God will go to great lengths to get your attention, the reason... It, the re now, this is where it gets really interesting, okay? 
God has gone through great lengths to save you and I. Here's what he went through. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the grave. God became man, nursed on the breasts of the Virgin Mary, grew and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he was crucified for our sins under Pontius Pilate. God has gone through great lengths to save us. But here's the deal. The way he's preaching this, it's clear he's trying to get people who are not Christians to make a decision, because apparently they're at the end of the rope because of all the consequences. They're trying to manage the consequences of the rebellion against God. And, you know, and basically, you know, basically he's applying passages now or he's going to be applying passages that apply to Christians, but not non-Christians to non-Christians as an argument for them to, quote, make a decision to do things God's way, which, by the way, is not is not the same as repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Reason that God will go to great lengths to, you know, again, get you to look in his direction instead of all the other directions. <laughs> the reason you got caught, the reason your wife found out, the reason your husband found out, the reason that letter that you thought was thrown away was found, the reason your employer found out, the reason the IRS found out, the reason you can't seem to get by with anything. It's not that God is mad at you. It's that God is pursuing you. And God loves the, and God disciplines those that he loves just like a good father. God See, that's the thing. Um, hang on a second here. Hmm. It, it's like yes and no. It, and it, the way he's preaching this, it's it, and who he's trying to reach, I'm going, oh, wait a second. What about the passage that says that those who do not believe remain under the wrath of God? Where is the wrath of God in all of this? That's gone. And now it gets kind of weird, you know, because I, I want to read something to you. On the website at North Point, when you watch this message, there's discussion questions, okay? Discussion question number two from the website. In this message, Andy says, God doesn't have to punish us because sin bears its own consequences. How does this change your view of sin? How does it change your view of God? God doesn't have to punish us because sin bears its own consequences? Hmm. And then I would want to know how he would reconcile what he's saying with, you know, like a passage from the Gospel of John that makes it clear that, you know, this is John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hmm. So, how are we to understand this? If he's if he's preaching to non-Christians and basically saying, "Listen, God loves you and and the reason why you're going through all this is cuz sin has consequences, but God's wrath, you know, God isn't mad at you." Where's what has happened to the wrath of God? This message sounds like it is well, related to. This might be a cousin of Rob Bell's gospel, or a cousin of Brian McLaren's teaching. 
the, the, where's the wrath of God and punishment for sin? Where's hell? What happened to it? Love the nation of Israel far too much to let them get by with their sin and disrespect. God went after the nation of Israel because they belonged to him. And the reason God's coming... Well, wait a second here. The majority of Israel perished in this judgment. What about those people who were murdered by Nebuchadnezzar? As, well, they were killed in God's judgment and wrath against them. What about them? This doesn't make sense. After you is because you belong to him as well. And in that moment of tension, I understand this far better than you will ever know that I do. In that moment of tension, God feels like the enemy. But in that moment, God is your very best friend because God who created you knows more about what's best for you and good for you than you'll ever know until you finally get in sync with his will for your life. Here's what this looks like within the context of the New Testament. God who did not spare his own son in order to gain your salvation. Now, before you get excited, think, oh, well, there's the gospel. Watch what he does with this. Is not about to spare your wealth, your health, or maybe even your marriage or career in order to get your attention. If God wouldn't... Yeah, but God didn't... Jesus wasn't crucified in order for, you know, for God to get Jesus' attention. So there's the gospel... God didn't spare his own son to gain your salvation. But it's just being, yeah, see, see, he didn't spare his own son, so he's not going to spare your wealth, your health, your marriage, your career when he's going to try to get your attention. Wow. Not much of a comfort there, that much of a good news there. I mean, there's the gospel, but it's being used weird. It's not even being used as the solution and remedy for sin and rebellion against God. It's just being basically held up as a cautionary tale. Yeah, listen. Yeah, God didn't spare his own son, so don't think that he's not going to come after you too. It's not very good news, is it? Spare his own son's life in order to gain your salvation. Do you really think he would spare anything else in order to get your attention? If giving his son was what allowed him to connect with you in a personal and real way, is there any yeah, allow him to connect with you in a real way? What does that mean? Anything that he would not sacrifice in order to make sure that you continued to walk in that kind of relationship with him? Three or four hundred years after this event, the apostle John, who had been with Jesus, seen Jesus die, saw the resurrected Christ, was an old man and writing with the hindsight and the ability to look back over Jesus' life and everything that had happened in the 20 or 30 ensuing years. He made this statement on behalf of Jesus. This was something he heard Jesus say that apparently wasn't written down anywhere else. Listen to what he says. He says, those whom I love, this is Jesus speaking, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Right, this is something that is uh, for Christians, not non-Christians. Oh, he says, here's what you need to do. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. Here yeah, he's writing this to a church that had kicked him out. It's weird. Um, second seeker-driven pastor in one same day who's twisted... Uh, Revelation chapter 3. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Revelation chapter 3, and let's see who this is written to and what's going on. 
To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Notice that this is repent because he's going to spew them out of his mouth, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he will uh, with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me. Notice that Jesus is on the outside of the church. Hello, let me in. Uh, Don't you think this is kind of weird here? You know, I'm on the outside knocking at the door of this church in Laodicea. That's what that's about. This is not about making a decision for Jesus. This is about a church that is neither hot nor cold. They are wealthy, affluent, and could care less about God. And Jesus is saying he's going to spew them out of his mouth. And he calls them to repent. Right? So, weird. Um, Second seeker-driven guy, same day. Uh, Andy Stanley, along with Mark Driscoll, both twisting portions of Revelation chapter 3. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock, and I'm not knocking because I can't get in. I'm not knocking because the door is keeping me out. I'm knocking in the same way that Jeremiah went to Zedekiah and said, Zedekiah, this is your last chance. You can either open that gate and present yourself to Nebuchadnezzar humbly, or you can wait because when he comes this way, it will be bad for you and everyone you love and everyone under your authority. And hundreds of years later, John, the apostle John, captures that same imagery. And he says, God loves you. And those that he loves, he rebukes and he disciplines. And behold, because I love you. I- yeah, out of context, out of context. Why didn't you tell the other part of the letter to Laodicea? Because those details matter and they end up having a huge bearing on how we understand those words that you're flashing on the screen at your church out of context. Man, where's the gospel here? Where's the wrath of God? I mean, the, the Jesus's death on the cross makes no sense because there Jesus is suffering the wrath of God in our place. Suffering, bleeding, dying, scourged, nails through his hands and feet, all because of your sin. He's dying an agonizing death on the cross for your sins. But that's not the level of of what's going on here. This is the level of, oh, well, a parent disciplining, you know, an errant teenager, you know, taking away their Facebook privileges. Repent, you know, you know, come on, you know, do the right thing. Straighten up. Fly right. It's all law. 
It's watered down, but there's no gospel here at all. I'm standing outside the door and knocking, and I'm waiting for you to open up the door of the throne room of your life to get off the throne and to allow me to be not only your savior, but to be your king. I'm waiting for you to submit yourself to my authority. I'm waiting for you to say one big fat yes, regardless of the request. And because and there it is. That's the standard evangelical line. I'm waiting for you to make a decision not only just to make me your savior, but to make me your king. Huh. What is that? That's not the gospel, by the way. Because I love you, I will not stand out here forever. And because I love you, I will continue to knock. And because I love you, I'm going to continue to bug you. And because I love you, I'm going to continue to put pressure on your conscience. And because I love you, I'm going to continue to send people into your lives to, life to point out the very things you want no one to point out. And because I love you, I want you to repent. So this is repentance without forgiveness. We're supposed to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Isn't the cross the solution? In this way of thinking, the cross isn't the solution. I, I don't. It's just an example of how you better watch out because God will come get you. Now, if I didn't say anything else, every person... In all of, at all of our churches and everybody watching and listening, you immediately know what that thing is, don't you? For some of you, it's go home and sit down with your husband or wife and tell them something that's going to break their heart, but you realize they're going to find out or you're going to tell them. And today, God has given you one last opportunity to be the person that brings that information. So confession without forgiveness, just come and clean. As opposed to them discovering it. You say it's going to hurt them so bad, it's going to hurt them either way. This is your, maybe your final chance. For some of you, it's go home and get rid of some things. For some of you, it's go home and pack up because you're living somewhere you have no business living, and you know that. And you didn't need a preacher to tell you that. God, where is the cross? Serious. You're just telling people to clean up their act. This is moralism. I don't even need a crucified and risen Savior for this. It's been arm wrestling with you over that issue for a long, long time. For others of you, it's to end a relationship. For others of you, it's to get rid of some form of electronics that keeps dragging you to a direction that you really don't even want to go in. I don't know what it is. For some of you, it's to go home and get rid of something. For some of you, it's to go home and pour your alcohol down the drain because it's become a third person in your marriage or in your relationship. And it has nothing to do with the alcohol. It has to do with the, how the alcohol impacts you. And you know that. And you've justified it and justified it and justified it. But you can hardly pray anymore. Because every time you do... Now, this is coming from the guy who wouldn't call homosexuality a sin. You know, this his theology is getting squirrely here. Very moralistic. Where is the cross? It's like whatever this thing is, it's like God brings it front and center. And you're like, nope, nope. I want to be king. God who loves you says, no, 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 I want to be your king. So uh, he already is. That, that's uh. Open the door and invite me in to the throne room of your life. I don't know what it is for you, but it comes back to this simple, simple Bible word. Repent.
Yeah, the other Bible word we need is forgiveness. Because the two go together. Repent. Repent. Today we're going to close our service on all of our campuses with a song that we've been singing for a while. And I want to just read the first verse in the chorus. Because you may have seen this, you may have sung it, you may have memorized the song, but I want these words to punctuate your heart because for some of you, even as you're listening, you get your straight face on, your church face on, you know, nobody's elbowed you yet and you know what they're all thinking around you and you're just gonna keep it together. I just pray like crazy that maybe even if it takes this song that God would break you. Not that so you would be a broken... So God's not gonna break me through his word, he's gonna break me through a song. ...in person, but so... That you'll be more. Yeah, basically, they're gonna make the uh, the song carry the emotional, manipulative weight here. Apparently, the Holy Spirit only works when there's a song playing. Pliable in His hands, and you won't miss what He has for you for the rest of your life. This is what the song says: "The battle rages on." We all know what that's like. As storm and tempest roar, do nobody knows there's a battle inside of you, but you know. We cannot win this fight inside our rebel hearts. We're laying down our weapons now. We raise our white flag. We surrender all to you, all for you. And then here's my favorite part. We raise our white flag. Can I make a point here? I mean, the metaphor isn't even the gospel. I mean... When one army surrenders to another, they just say, okay, that's great. Now you can go home. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> no, um, yeah. Um, you might have war crimes you got to pay for. You know, things, you, you understand what I'm saying here. This isn't a game of freeze tag. The, the you know, the, this isn't a game of baseball. You know, the losing team go, you know, goes home and, you know, to play. And, you, what? Uh, where is the cross? The war is over. Love has come. Love has won. Uh, wouldn't that be Rob Bell's slogan just put in the past tense? Love wins, love won. This is Rob Bell's theology. Do you know why God relentlessly pursues you? Because he loves you. And he's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to win you back. But that's your decision. Pelagianism. <clears throat> and so he stands at the door. No, he doesn't. And he knocks. And he knocks on the door of the Laodicean church, not your heart. Let me pray for you. And we'll okay, done. <sighs> wow. God without wrath. World without sin. I mean, you're just making mistakes. You know, you're just a teenager who's, you know, needs some correction. And, you know, all the problems that are going wrong in your life is because you're trying to manage the consequences of your sin or manage. Just let God sit on the throne of your heart. That'll solve everything, right? Good night. And the only time the cross showed up was as a negative example. No comfort. No forgiveness. No crucified and risen Savior. Just this moralism pull yourself up by your bootstraps surrender make god your king <clears throat> none of those are the call of the gospel the call of the gospel is repent and be forgiven i don't know what that was that wasn't 
a Christian message. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy, won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>